Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. This is Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And I'm Tim Cronin. We're back with Andrew Capel-Shaw and Alexandra Wright from Active Communication. Your tagline from your website, what can lawyers learn from actors? So welcome back. Thank you. Apparently we didn't mess it up too bad the first time. <laughs> but we we have just loved working with you guys because the things that make our job worthwhile are, you know, do they care about the people and do they care about the art form? You know, the process of doing this work really well. Come see us in a workshop and we expand on this more in workshops. I think we're setting one up for San Diego at the Hotel Dell for the Arizona Bar Association. I think that's the only open one that we have coming up where we're going to be doing the full arsenal and all of us will be there, but I don't know if that's confirmed yet. If you come see us as a workshop, one of the things you'll learn is that the plaintiff and the defendant are not the main characters in the story that you're telling at all, and neither are you, okay? When you think about, and I'm really into the idea of some of the stuff that Joseph Campbell uncovered. So after you're done with Jonathan Haidt and Brene Brown, go back and watch the old from the 80s, the Joseph Campbell interviews that were done at Skywalker Ranch, because they're a really digestible way to get the core of Joseph Campbell's wisdom. And then go back and read The Hero with a Thousand Faces. What Campbell did is he went around the world and he found that in tribal Africa and tribal Amazon, all the way up to modern Scandinavia and the United States, that story follows a particular form, right? There are consistent patterns that exist across all stories to sort of create a human story, a human story that is embedded in us the same way my rat terrier's reaction to a mouse is embedded in her. We have this baked in story and when the trial story unfolds in a way that connects to our story that's baked into our DNA, for lack of a better way to put it, when the trial story unfolds that way, the plaintiff and the defendant are characters in the story, but they are not the main character. The lawyer is not the main character. The lawyer is the best friend, right? You know, the lawyer is Sam in Lord of the Rings. I have a wonderful slide about this where I take a speech that Sam gives at the end of the second of the three Lord of the Rings films, and I just cut and paste, you know, Hobbit for juror, right? And it's one of the most compelling closing arguments ever. You know, how can things go back to the way they were, Mr. Frodo, when so much bad has happened? How can things go back to the way they were, members of the jury, when so much bad has happened? There's good in this world and it's worth fighting for. There's good in this world, members of the jury, it's worth fighting for. Because the hero of the story is the jury. The story hasn't ended yet. The story is not resolved. Something bad has happened and we need a hero to come fix it. And so it's understanding that I am the best friend and guide so that the hero can save the day. I have two commandments from when I used to teach this at the law school level. Number one is really listen and really talk, which is stolen from Sanford Meisner. And the other is, it's not about you. If you want to become a great lawyer, in my humble opinion, you will become a great lawyer if you master listening and the idea that it's not about me. That will make you bulletproof. If you want to see that in action, go watch the Bush-Perot-Clinton debates 
there's this amazing moment that'll be the first thing that pops up when you YouTube search it, where somebody asks a question and Bush gives this rambling answer. And then Clinton says, tell me about you. How has the deficit affected you? And this woman lights up and it's like he just owns her and he owns the audience, including the at-home audience in that moment, because it's not about him. Let me ask you guys this. When do you usually get involved in a case and why would it be better? I mean, I know the last one we did with you, you guys didn't get involved until a few weeks before our trial. And then we were rushing to have enough prep sessions. Do you ever get involved earlier, like before the client's depots? And what kind of a difference can that make? The main reason it's helpful for us to come in early pre-deposition is, again, we're dealing with folks who have been through traumatic, even sounds like we're minimizing what a lot of these people have gone through, life-changing, traumatic, horrific events. And by the time we get to them, we're having to unravel and work through years and years of protection. And so the more time we can have with them to give them homework and to let a lot of the work kind of sink and settle in, the better it is for everyone all around, because it's scary what we're asking them to do. And that requires building trust and that requires time. I was going to say, it depends on the lawyer. Mm -hmm. If we've never worked with somebody before, a lot of the times it's like last minute, right? If we've worked with them enough, it gets to the point where they're calling us pre-depo to talk about the case and schedule the pre-depo sessions six weeks in advance. I mean, that's the idea. So we're talking six to eight hours of prep and drafting up report summaries that go into the work product file, almost like a medcron, so that anybody on the team picks up the folder, they can read all of the stories associated with this case. And then also our thoughts and feelings like, you know, this person is a rambler. They're only a rambler because of X, Y, Z. So before they go into prep, we need to remind them of ABC. Majority of our work is still people not realizing they have a problem until too late or thinking they can fix it and then finding they can't. But for the big time lawyers and for, frankly, for the big verdicts, the big verdicts are usually the ones, you know, when you start talking about eight, nine, 10 figure verdicts, we were on that case. You know, the attorney said, hey, I just got this in and I think there's something here and I want to talk to you about it. One of the things, Andrew, you and I were going back emailing about different topics to talk about, and one of the ones you wrote is advice for lawyers and witnesses if you're doing self-prep. And I think you had like five things down there, like what are the five most important things to know about witness prep? It said two commandments, breathe, slow down, show your witness, don't tell, practice. Can you tell us about those? I'm going to let Alex start with breathing because I jokingly say to people, Alex is a Harvard-educated breather. <laughs> Which is true. It's true. It really is. <laughs> One of my favorite things in introducing breath is just the notion that our brain is just a piece of meat enclosed in darkness. And our brain doesn't know what is going on about how we're feeling other than what our breath is telling us. So our breath is sending all the signals to the brain about what's going on and what we're experiencing and how we're feeling. And so oftentimes when we have folks who are really nervous or folks who aren't present because they're really nervous or folks who don't want to be present with what they're feeling, it's a breathing issue. And the amazing thing about breath is that we can kind of reverse engineer that and say, okay, well then let's just start breathing properly and that will calm down the brain and that will help us feel more present and that will help us feel more connected to our emotions. So breath is a huge part of what we do. It's a tool we use if we feel like, again, people aren't being present with how they're feeling, but also more and more, I'm using it in sessions as a way of grounding 
the witness at the end, especially if we've had a very emotional session. We never want to leave our witnesses in like a worse state than when we have found them. A more truthful state, yes, and maybe in a more aware state. But breathing is also a great tool for helping witnesses find kind of a stasis again at the end of a very difficult session. I'll sort of take that a step further and say, if we have time, I'll tell you guys the story of the world's greatest witness. But breathing, you'd be amazed. Here is something that you can do in self-prep that we do constantly. It is a core piece of our work that occurs in at least 50% of all preps, probably more like 80% of all preps. And it doesn't require advanced technique or nuance or any of the actor skills we've been talking about. And that is going into depot, teaching the witness that it's not question, answer, question, answer, that it's question, deep breath, one Mississippi in, one Mississippi out at least, deep breath, answer, okay? Because what happens is, and you guys know this because you do it to the other side, because it's technique. I call it lawyer Simon says, no pun intended, Simon law firm. Lawyer Simon says is question, answer, question, answer, question, answer, hard question, uh, rush, bad answer. And the way you keep that bad moment from happening, and that's the overwhelming majority of times a witness will tank is in that moment, unless they're tanking on some legal fact that you didn't prepare them for. The way that you keep it from happening is you start out early. If you force the other side to play your game, your odds of winning skyrocket. And the witness's game is slow. So you stop the lawyer Simon says by making them slow down on the easy questions. And so I will go through the prep. Can you state your name for the record? Yeah, my name is Tom Smith. Stop. All right. So I want to try this again. I told you before, I want one Mississippi, two Mississippi. Ready? Okay. Can you state your name for the record? My name is Tom Smith. Where are you from, Tom Smith? I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. How old are you? I'm 40. And I go, hold on, stop. Do you notice you, he was like, ah, I didn't breathe. And it's like, these are the easiest questions known to man. You have to condition them to stop and take their time on all questions. And it's just conditioning, conditioning, conditioning. It's like learning your first step as a football player, learning your first motion in a golf swing, condition, condition, condition. So that for me, when you talk about breathing and pacing, that's how you stop the rambling witness. You're going to head off a lot of problems. And the rushing witness, because all of those habits are only going to get more extreme with nerves. And there's no way these witnesses aren't going to feel nervous in the room. That's an impossible ask. What you're describing is what all of us trial lawyers and litigators try to get to happen with every witness. We want to try to develop a situation where they're like answering us right away before they're thinking. And then we get to the gotcha question and they answer it before they take a second to think. Yeah. And again, so much of that is just nervous energy of like, are we done yet? Are we done yet? And so the breathing has the added benefit of slowing them down, but also helping with that nervous energy that causes them to rush. This actually dovetails into one of my other sort of pieces of advice, which is show, don't tell. What a lot of lawyers do, because it's the way that lawyers learn, right? Lawyers learn differently than most people learn, which is why they were able to pass the LSAT. And like, you guys are smarter than most of the population in a critical thinking kind of way. There's not an emotional charge behind that. I'm just saying like, it is textbook proof. 
And so lawyers are able to learn by being told better than the vast majority of the population. Most people learn by doing. And that's a really key distinction. I always say that testifying is like surfing. I can give you all the books. I can lecture. We can watch film. I can tell you how, all about surfing. But until you get a board and hop out in the water, you don't know the first thing about surfing. Same with being a witness. So this is all stuff in Catherine's book, Harvesting Witnesses Stories. It's available now from the AAJ Press. <laughs> we use a role play based method. And the role play is done in bite sized chunks, never more than five minutes at a time where the lawyer plays the role of bad lawyer. And in Zoom, my screen, I will mute my screen and it will literally say bad lawyer on my screen. In the olden days, before we did this virtually, we had hats that literally, it's like a black hat that says bad lawyer and a white hat that says good lawyer, you know, stealing from the old wild, wild west, the good cowboy and the bad cowboy colored hat. And so that the witness knows that we're in practice, we're in role play right now. And we'll work our way through an entire deposition in role play form but we'll spend most of our time on where do you work? Where did you work before that? What's your highest level of education? Because what we're doing is we're training them on process. We can never train them for every question that's going to come their way. What we can train them for is to understand the process of the deposition. So we'll go for a couple minutes and then I'll stop and I'll say, how did that feel? And I'll be like, you know, oh, I don't know. I'm like, let me tell you some of the stuff you did good. And then instead of saying this was bad, because it wasn't really bad. It was just, they didn't have the tools. I'll say, let me give you a tool. And then we go into something that I don't think we'll have time to talk about on this podcast, but again, it's in Catherine's book. We introduce something called the four forms, which is a technique for breaking things down in depot prep, or we introduce what are called ways of saying no and ways of saying yes, which is a tool for cross-examination. But it's all about practice, practice, practice in the role play format. And we do that for a while. Well, this has been a great conversation, guys, but Andrew, I think a great way to end is I want to hear about the greatest witness who ever lived. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great story. The greatest witness who ever lived. So it was actually, it was a high profile case. I'm going to change the facts here a little bit just to protect all parties involved, but it is a husband and a wife who are involved in a car crash, a possibly drunk driver. And the husband is of like my height. He's like six four, you know, six five, heavy set guy. He's got a deep, what I call Barry White voice. He's not talking to me a whole lot. We haven't done the damages first. I don't remember why we didn't do that much on the damages, but we needed to get into role play early on. And his wife was nervous as all get out. And you could tell this is one of the relationships where she did most of the talking, like she was pretty chatty. So we get into role play. And when we get into role play, I say, you know, you've got a little bit of a nervous edge. Why don't you go first? She's like, okay, okay. And she goes and like most witnesses, most of the time, she's too quick. She's stepping on things. She's got a lot of nervous energy. She's really caught in this, like, what am I supposed to say? As opposed to what is the truth, which is a big part of something that we work on with a witness. And I say, you know, okay, great. I give her some feedback and I say, you know, why don't we let your husband give it a try? And he just kind of goes, almost like, like Stanley from the office, like, okay, let's do this. The bad lawyer says, have you ever had your deposition taken before, sir? Yes. And what kind of case was that? Which one? 
<laughs> well, sir, how many times have you had your deposition taken? I couldn't give you an exact number. And along the way, he's demonstrating a lot of techniques that we haven't gotten to talk about, but if we had, you would have recognized them in this demonstration. And well, was it more than five? Yes. Was it more than 12? Yes. <laughs> Can you give us an estimate of approximately how many times you've been deposed? He said, no, I don't think I could do that reliably. And I'm going to skip all the deep breaths, just assume they're in, because otherwise the story takes forever. How many times have you been deposed? And he said, if I had to guess, and this would not necessarily be a reliable number, I would say probably somewhere between 10 and 15,000 times. What? <laughs> and at this point, I'm like, sir, what do you do for a living? And this is my favorite part. He goes, I'm presently retired. And at this point, bad lawyer this is, is going the most like frustrating witness. Like ever. he's pissing off his own lawyer <laughs> yeah. who's playing the role. I'm like, God, how much is he going to piss off the defense lawyer at this point? Yeah, right. And he said, Well, what did you used to do for a living, sir? And the guy goes, I was a investigator for a district attorney's office for 47 years. Every time I performed an investigation, I was deposed on the substance of that investigation. And he went on for a little while longer. And finally, I stopped him. And I looked at the lawyer and I said, I refuse to work with this man because I can only make him worse. <laughs> Sir, you're amazing. And then I looked at the wife. And this is my favorite part. I said to the wife, did you see what he was doing? And she said, he took forever. Every question you asked him took forever. And I said, did he look like he was lying? She was like, no, he just looked like he was trying to make sure he remembered it and that he worded it the right way. And I said, did it look like he was trying to be tricky? And she was like, no, it looked like he was just trying to explain it right. And I said, what you just described is all the stuff that we talked about earlier that you were struggling with. You got to see it live. And I said, ma'am, do you have kids? And this is something I say to witnesses a lot. She goes, yeah. And I said, when you think your kids have gotten into something or when something's broken or whatever the case may be, and you ask them what happened and there's a pause, can you tell by looking at them if they're trying to remember what happened so that they can explain it or they're trying to make something up? And she goes, oh, Lord, yes. That's any parent within like the first week of the child being able to talk. And I went, that's every lawyer by their fifth deposition. And I'm like, but you notice as long as you're going to tell the truth and as long as you're searching for the right words, it's going to look like you're trying to be as honest and comprehensive as possible, which is exactly what your husband looked like just now. And she went, it was like a light bulb went off in her head. And that was short work. We would have been there for two hours if she hadn't gotten to watch her husband go through that one cycle. It was the opportunity to see all of the work that we teach just came from someone at a level that I couldn't have even done if I was deposed, which by the way, Alex got deposed not too long ago and it was hilarious to watch 
her try to prepare with us for that. Did you take deep breaths? As <laughs> long yeah. as you took deep breaths. It was a joke. We all had like a dinner together as a team. And I told them, I'm so nervous. And they were like, you do this for a living. And I was like, I know, and I don't want to do it. It ended up working out really well, though, thankfully. And my lawyer called me afterwards. And he said, that's the best deposition I've ever seen. And I was like, well, you know, I do this, right? And he was like, no. And I was like, well, if you ever need anyone prepped, let me know. <laughs> but I was so scared. That is the way we roll. We just have to go to story. And I can't think of a better way to wrap it up than with all of our stories. I did live prep on a case and it was a property owner who owned a duplex and was renting out both sides of the duplex. And construction company parks an 18-wheeler on a 45-degree incline, doesn't put down chopping blocks. And we don't know if the brakes were bad or not because they hadn't had the state required annual inspection in four years. Not surprisingly, truck comes loose, takes off, gets going like 45, 50 miles an hour down this hill, plows through a brick wall and through the brick veneer and into the center line of this house and the main support beams. And we're thinking like, what is the defense gonna do? I mean, it's not like, you know, we ran our house into their truck. And so it was a damages case or a, a mitigation of damages, that's what it was. And the owner of the duplex, he gets cross-examined. And during cross-examination, they get photos of the wreckage and they start pointing to like termite damage in the studs of the wall and sort of trying to plant. And it's what you would call counter reptile strategy, which is plant doubt, confuse the issue and stuff like that. But it was a really dumb move because he's like, and you hadn't had it remediated for termites. You know, is this sign of termite damage? And he's crossing their construction experts. Like, can you identify termite damage? And my guy gets off the stand after they cross him on that because he's the first person they raised it with. And he was like, I can't believe it. I just blew it. I totally blew it. Like that guy had me. Like I didn't have an answer. They're going to think it's my fault. And I used the story to teach the idea that no one ever wins cross-examination. Your best hope is to tie, whereas Catherine says, break even and charm the jury. But he gets off and he's like, I can't believe it. I didn't have a check for termites. And now the jury's going to think this is my fault. And I'm looking at him like, dude, do you realize how incredibly idiotic it is to think that an 18 wheeler going 50 miles an hour through a brick wall would have been stopped if only you'd gotten termite damage taken care of? And he was like, well, I guess when you say it like that, I'm like, did you look at the jury during that part of the cross? He was like, I was just really overwhelmed and I didn't. I was like, the jury thought this guy was a moron, like an abject moron Rightfully to make so. these yeah. kind of suggestions. The jury never forgave the defense attorney for that. They were just like, he's an idiot and he's a snake and I don't trust him anymore. But the guy came off the stand feeling like he just had his ass handed to him. And I'll go through and I'll be like, look, yeah, this is going to suck, but those are just termites. They're going to talk about you know, how you hadn't seen your grandkids in six months to offset that you're going to miss out on the opportunity to be with your grandkids. Do you think anyone in the jury who has grandkids is going to think, wow, just because you didn't see them, you don't want to see them? Like that's termites. That gap in visiting your grandkids does not neutralize the damages of not getting to spend time with your grandkids. Those are just termites. It's a misleading thing. And so I'll tell the termite story. Another good story. 
I do want to end with something else though. And I want to say that we absolutely love you guys and everybody on your team, like young to old, wherever stage they're at, they have those dual passions and that's what makes it easy for us. Well, thank you both so much. And you know what? We love working with you guys. I mean, no question. It's a joy. You're very, very good. You're responsive. You're professional. I get so much out of it and we really, really enjoy working with you. Well, we love working with y'all. Thank you so much. So thank you for joining us both. This has been excellent. This has been another episode of The Jury's Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And I'm Tim Cronin. See you next time. The Jury is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And tune in to the other podcasts in The Simon Law Firm library, including Heels in the Courtroom, a lively look at life and law from a female point of view. And Results Don't Lie, a legal drama podcast about the nation's first opioid overprescription medical malpractice case. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.